It is really good to see you today, and hopefully you'll be able to see, I know this venue isn't the easiest, but you'll be able to see what's on the screen, uh, but I'll certainly be reading through that. If you look at your handout, you'll see there are two sides to that, and I'll explain why in a minute. It's because of the way we've structured the seminar, um, but you should be on the side that says, number one, God's word and our traditions just at the moment, and there are some blanks to fill in there, uh, which I'm going to lead you through. So what we're about here, uh, this series is called The Bible, The Jesus Way. It is a series of three, but they do stand alone as well. So if people want to come tomorrow who weren't here today, that's fine. Um, If you are here today and you can't come tomorrow, that's also fine. So they do stand alone, but I suppose they also build together. Uh, And our aim is really this. It's captured in the subtitle of the series, Learning from Jesus How to Hear, Trust and Obey Scripture. I was having a conversation with someone who I go back back a long way with. We used to be on the Christian Union Committee together at Queen's, and he's now in ministry uh, elsewhere. And I was talking to him this morning, just generally, we hadn't caught up since last year at New Horizon. That's often the way we see each other on a yearly basis. And he was saying really the big issue as far as he sees in ministry is the authority of God's word. And I couldn't disagree with him with that. I think for me, this is underlying so many of the big issues. I talk about quite a number of the big issues that are facing our society at the moment. I speak in different places about issues like abortion, about end-of-life assisted suicide and so on. With my medical background, I have an interest in those areas. Uh, I also speak about some of the issues facing the church in terms of mission and what we should be as church. But in all of those areas, it really comes back to this question, what has God said and what does it mean to live faithfully, obediently, in loving relationship with him. And we want to get that message across that this is an and thing. It's not, here's the Bible, and therefore let's forget all the stuff about uh, spiritual life and the spirit and so on. It's an and. We want to be following the spirit in obedience to God's word. We need both of those in our lives. So please don't think this is a series about the word and it's in contrast to something else because the goal of this is that we learn from Jesus. So we're going to look at his example of what he said about scripture and how he used scripture. That's our source material. We're going to learn how to hear, trust and obey scripture. Now, if I could put another word sort of over that, maybe it's the word confidence. I think as Christians faced with big, big challenges from the world, faced with challenges in the church, faced with personal challenges, we're kind of shaken in our confidence. So we don't know, but how do I handle scripture? I'm not sure I know how to do that. I'm not confident to do that. And we want to help you to know that when you go away from here, our job will be done. If you go away hungry to read the scriptures, to hear what God is saying to you through them, to trust in them and to trust in him through trusting them and to obey them, to put them into action. So that's our goal, to give you greater confidence as you do that in all of the challenges that you face. So trusting and obeying God or the scriptures, sometimes you might ask that question, well, it's not one or the other. If I said to you, and you may have heard me in other places say this before, but if I said to you, you know, you can trust me, or rather if I said to you, okay, there's my mother is over here, okay, she's here in the seminar, I'll not point too closely at her or she'll go bright red, but she's here. Now, if you were talking to my mum and you said, Paul seems like a a right sort of a fellow, you've done a decent enough job bringing him up, or uh, I'm sure you did a good job, but okay, whatever it might be, but if, if she said to you, well, yes, yes, Paul talks a good talk, but you don't see that in his life at home. There would be a problem, wouldn't there? Because 
if I said to you here, you know, I'm a, I'm a medic by background, or you read that in my bio, then I have a, a degree in medicine, and then you were talking to my mum and she said, Paul never studied medicine, right? You, th there would be a problem, wouldn't there? Would you trust me? No. Why? Because you can't trust my word. Isn't that right? So if you can't trust a person's words, you can't trust them. Words are the way that we communicate ourselves. We build relationship. We extend ourselves to one another. So to trust a person's word is to trust them. And so we can't separate between trusting and obeying God and trusting God's words. So the question then is, is scripture the word of God? Which is what I want to talk about in just a minute. Does our view of scripture match with the view that Jesus had? How did Jesus think about the Bible? So I think most of us would say if Jesus thought something or taught something, then that must be right. That should be our example, our model. This is the Jesus way. That's what we want to learn from. And then how can we better hear and put into action what scripture is saying? Those are the kind of questions we want to help answer. And we're going to do that in a game of two halves in a sense. I'm going to talk certainly today and tomorrow. We'll flip this around on the third day. But in the first half, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about what Jesus taught and did with scripture. And then I'm going to hand over to Valerie, who's going to lead us through a guided study, which is the other side of your page, which relates to what I've said. So it's helping you to work through and you're gaining hands-on skills that you can take home in your own study of scripture. And then at the end, uh, we'll have a little bit of time for questions as well that you might have coming back from that. So what's the problem that I'm thinking about this morning. Well, here's, uh, here's me coming away from the library in BBC where I lecture with a pile of, it's not actually me, but if I were, I'm coming away with a pile of books. These books look quite old. It mightn't be as old as that. There might be some more modern ones on there. Uh, if you go into a library like the one at BBC, you'll see hundreds, thousands of books. Great books. Commentaries on the Bible, theology textbooks, devotional books. You've probably got some on your bookshelves at home as well. Uh, you could add to that all of the digital media, the websites, the podcasts, all of the ideas that are out there. Many of them very, very good about what God wants for us and what even the Bible is saying to us. But somewhere at the bottom of that or in the middle of that might be the Bible itself, which, of course, is really a collection of 66 books and not just one. But it is one of these books, perhaps one of these volumes amongst many. Where is it amongst those many? How do we know that what we're believing, what we're doing, is actually what the Bible has said and not what others are saying about what God thinks? Is it what God has said or is it what other people think or even what we think in our own opinion? Or flipping that around, it's not just the Christian books that we read, it's all of the other values in the movies, in the films, in the books, in the media, in the news, in the conversations that we have in the shop. How do we hear God's word in the midst of that? How do we allow God's word to speak into that. So the title of today's talk or today's seminar is the Bible or God's word or our traditions. Now I could add to that God's word or lots of other things. God's word or the world's opinions. God's world or my selfish desires. God's word or not just our traditions, because traditions build up very, very quickly. You might think, well, this is a, having a go at the traditional churches, whatever that means. It's not. Because even in any church, traditions build up very, very quickly. They build up around our preferences, around the way we do things. And we always need to ask the question, what is God's word saying into that? So please don't think when I say God's word or our traditions, it's having a go at 
older or more traditional churches or Christians at all. It's trying to say to all of us, how do we come freshly to God's word to hear what he's saying to us? So let's look at scripture. No point talking about this if we don't actually look at what God's word says if we look at the Bible. So Mark chapter 7 verses 1 to 13. If you have a Bible there, I'd encourage you to open it at that passage. I think it's good, or turn it on, whatever it may be, whatever you're using. But if you want, if you, you may be able to see it on the screen, I'm going to read the passage to you. I think it's worth taking time to do that. So Mark 7, verses 1 to 13. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered round Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now you'll notice here that the translators have put wee brackets around the next few verses. That's, they're telling us that Mark's going to go on a bit of a sideline to give us some background information. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, a holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So there's a question here, often with Jesus, he asks questions and people ask him questions. It's a conversation. And he replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. And he continued, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is korban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. So we'll end the reading there at verse 13 of Mark 7. Now I want you to try just for a moment, you can close your eyes if that helps, to imagine the scene. Okay. When we're reading, particularly when we're reading the parts of scripture which are about real events, about things that actually happened, it's a good and a healthy thing just to use your imagination. Your imagination is a gift from God. Now that's not the same as what I call speculation. The danger with the imagination is you go down a road that isn't what God is actually saying. But, but put yourself in the scene. Here is Jesus. Here are these Pharisees and teachers of the law. They've come along to him. What are they like? Are they angry? Are they irate? Are they what's the, the are they coming with a genuine question? Are they all the same as each other? Might some of them have a genuine question and some of them just be trying to catch him out? What's going on here? What about Jesus? How does he respond? You hypocrites? What tone of voice? We don't have that in the scripture, but our imaginations fill in some of those blanks. So put yourself in that scene. You're observing this. You're in the crowd. You're beside Jesus. You're hearing what he is saying. What is he saying to us? How is that relevant to us? 
So I'd encourage you when you're reading scripture to use your imagination, but don't let your imagination be the final guide, okay? Because otherwise you can end up in the wrong place. But it's good trying to think, what was this really like? It's not just words on a page. It's something that really happened. It's true history. And there's a couple of questions on the sheet that I want you just to pause and think about for a moment. So it's always good to ask questions as you read scripture. This is one of the things that will help you get more out of the word and help you get to the meaning and to the message that God wants you to take away. Mark gives us a bit of background information, that bit that the translators have put in brackets. But just have a look at the passage again and ask yourself, what other things would you need to know? What other things would help you in order to understand what this passage is really saying? So just pause and look at the the passage for a minute. And the second part of that question, where might you look for that knowledge? So have a read through that. Some of you will know what some of those things mean. But if you'd never encountered the Bible before, what words there, what ideas there would you be thinking, I I need to look this up, I need to find out more. So pause for a moment to do that. Okay, so I might give you longer time if we had longer time, but I don't want to eat into Valerie's time with you later. But what, any thoughts there? What what is in this passage that you, you know, a stranger to the Bible might be wondering, what's that, or who are they, or where's that, or... Just shout it out. Okay, so there's a quote from Isaiah. So if you knew who Isaiah was, if you knew what that means, this is a book in the Old Testament, that's great. If you were new to the Bible, you might know that. Okay, but there's something about how Jesus is using the Old Testament. Great. Unclean laws. Yeah. Right. So being in the marketplace, this uncleanness. So although Jesus is is attacking the Pharisees because of how they put traditions in the place of God's word, God's word in the Old Testament does say something about unclean and clean. And there's a whole background to that that is foreign to us uh, and, and we might need to understand. Yeah. What else? Who's Moses? So just like Isaiah, there's this Moses character. Who's he? Scribes and Pharisees, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who are they? So again, we might have our ideas of that. Even if you think you know, it's always a good question to ask, do I really understand? So those are some of the things, Jerusalem, the place Jerusalem, what's its significance and so on as well. So where would we go for that kind of knowledge, that kind of background information? We can go back to the Old Testament where he's quoting from. Yep, and... This is where the library or the books or even the internet might help us if we go to the right sources for some background information about the culture, the history, the time, and so on. So that's one of the resources that we have that can really help us. But to be honest, I think sometimes people like me overplay the importance of background. Okay? Now I'm going to say that because as a, those of you who teach or preach and as a lecturer in a college particularly, you know, you have to show that you know a little bit more, don't you? It's kind of, you know, an, an impressive. That's not my job. As a teacher of God's word, background is helpful. But what's actually in the text is more important, right? Background is helpful, but there's no substitute for just actually pausing to notice what it actually says. So don't let your study of the background and your reading of commentaries and whatever, which will be really helpful, but don't let that get in the way of just taking time to mull over this passage, to read over it several times, and to meditate on it as well. To see what is it actually saying, what does it actually mean? But background is important and background is helpful. 
So what I want to say now is just a little bit about what Jesus believed about the Bible as we kind of look at this passage and think of some of what the rest of what Jesus said. And there are some blanks to fill in. And the first thing from this passage is Jesus talks about Isaiah and he talks about Moses and he talks about them as if they were real historical people who actually wrote the things that they were attributed to them. Right? Now, is that important that Jesus believed it was really Isaiah who wrote the book of Isaiah? Is it important that he really believed that Moses wrote the books that are attributed to Moses? Well, it is important, isn't it? Because if Jesus believed that, unless we think Jesus was somehow mistaken, Jesus is affirming that these are real historical figures, real historical characters who wrote the things that they wrote. Now, that's good enough for me. You can have all sorts of debates about the evidence for why we should think it was Isaiah or not. But what Jesus is doing here is standing over and underlining and affirming the fact that the Old Testament was written by people who really lived in the time that people thought and believed they lived in. But of course, it's not just the words of Isaiah and Moses. Look at what Jesus says about their words. Verse 6, he talks about Isaiah's prophecy. And then he talks about the commandment or commandments of God in verse 8. And he even calls their words the word of God in verse 13. Thus you nullify the word of God. That's talking about Moses' commands. So you notice the way Jesus very, very comfortably slips between. Verse 9, he says, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God. In verse 10, for Moses said, do you see that? Because for Jesus, Moses said, and God said. It's not the words of Moses, and we need to dig around in that to see what God had said to Moses and how Moses had distorted it and whatever. Moses said, and these are the commands of God. And then um, the last point to make on this slide, it's essential if we're to avoid hypocrisy to distinguish God's word from our interpretations. Now, I've said human traditions, but human traditions build up very, very quickly, and they build up on the basis of our interpretation of Scripture. And I see this as somebody who teaches theology, that, you know, theology takes you one step, two steps, three steps, four steps away from the Bible. We need theology. We need to know what we believe about things. That's healthy and that's good. But the problem with it sometimes is it takes us into a place where what we're debating are the different ideas that people have and we're not coming back to the reference point to say what is Scripture actually saying. And that does two things. It divides us at times because it actually splits us from one another because we come to a slightly different conclusion and we like to focus on the difference rather than what unites. But more importantly than that, it takes us away from the heart of what Scripture is about. Now, that's not saying that secondary things don't matter. Secondary things are important too. But primary things are more important than secondary things. And the heart of Scripture, the heart of the Gospel, the person of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the promised coming of Jesus, these things that unite us, whatever church we go to, whatever our theological differences, these are the heart. And keeping the, the main thing the main thing is always the path to maturity, to growth, to greater faith and greater obedience to God. So we need to be able to say, well, God's word says this. And then our interpretation of it says this, or our theological thinking about it says this. But let's be open to reviewing that in light of what scripture is actually saying. 
I'm going to put up three big words or one big word and two smaller words. And I, I don't often do this, but I mean, I have to give you something that you can go out and impress other people with and say, look, I know these words that you don't know. But <laughs> these are the words that theologians use to describe what I think is Jesus' view of the Bible, what Jesus believed about the Bible. Verbal, plenary, inspiration. I'm going to explain what I mean by that. And the, the explanation, the blank is there for those words. The explanation is there on, the, on, on your handout. When we say it is inspired, we're saying that these are God's words as well as human words. And that's in the passage that we looked at. Moses said, God said. Isaiah said, God said. It's not that God wrote these things down and somebody dug them up in a field. God wrote them with his own hand, other than the Ten Commandments, which is very special, where he wrote it with his own finger. God used human beings as the agent, right? And they write with their own mind, their own style, in their own cultural setting. Paul writes differently than Peter or John. So when you're studying scripture, it's good to get familiar with the, the style of different writers. That helps you to understand what they're saying too. But it is still the word of God. Isaiah wrote differently than Moses. Prophecy is different than law, but Jesus calls them both God's word. And it's the words, not just the ideas. It's verbal. In other words, God didn't just come along and put a thought into Isaiah's mind and let Isaiah figure out how to express that as best he could as a human being. That's what happens when I preach. I have an idea in my mind and I try to express it and I try to get it across to you. And I may succeed to some degree and I'll fail to some degree. But it's not like that with the inspiration of Scripture. God guided the words and made sure that the words are accurate. Why do I say that Jesus believed that? Well, it's because of how he uses the Bible, not just in Mark 7, but some other references in your handout. He uses the Bible. Thanks very much. Thank you. He uses the Bible. He, he actually says not, not one part of a letter, one jot or a tittle, the dot on the I or the cross of the T will pass away until it's fulfilled. Now, if Jesus is saying that, that means it's not just the ideas behind scripture it's the very words themselves verbal and it's plenary it's the whole bible and every part jesus says in one place again the references are in your your handout but he says uh he talks about the whole all the prophets from abel to zachariah which is lovely in english because it's a to z as well okay but abel is where in the bible Genesis, second, right, well, not the second chapter, but he's the, the second generation of humans. He's, he's the son of uh, Adam. Where is Zechariah in the Old Testament? Right at the end, okay? And Jesus is saying from Abel to Zechariah, all of it, the whole thing, these were prophets from God. He talks about the Psalms. He talks about the prophets. He talks about the law. And he calls all of these three big parts of the Old Testament the word of God. And Jesus affirmed the Old Testament. So there it is, the whole sweep of history from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. He stood over it. He underlined it. He never questioned its authority. What's going on here in this passage is that he's stripping away human traditions which have been added to the Old Testament to get back to what the Old Testament really said. In other places like Matthew 5, what he does is he, he challenges the way that they had undermined the, the Old Testament. They had limited it. They'd made it about, well, I haven't broken this law or that law, instead of thinking, well, what is God really saying to my heart? And 
lust is as bad as adultery, he says. And anger is as bad as murder. Don't think that you're okay if you haven't murdered somebody. If you've been angry with somebody, you're a sinner and you need forgiveness. He intensifies it. He corrects their misunderstandings of it, their misuse of it. He helps them to see that some things are more important than others. But he never undermines the Old Testament. He always upholds it. And not only does he uphold the Old Testament, he authorized the New Testament. That's really important because the Old Testament, fair enough, let's live by that. But that's written for the nation of Israel. Some of that is no longer applicable to us. How do we know that? Because of the writings of the New Testament. Jesus, at the end of Luke, which we were hearing from Scott about Luke this morning, at the end of Luke, he commissions the apostles and he says to them that the the repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be preached from Jerusalem and across the world. He says, this is the heart of the redemption that I've come to bring. And the consequences are the kingdom that he's described that we were hearing about this morning. And he says, you are witnesses of the things that you're going to preach about. Now, again, we sometimes say we are witnesses. Okay, we want to witness to Jesus. But when the Bible uses the word witness, it uses it in the same way that I use it in another part of my work. I'm a magistrate in Belfast. And if somebody comes into the witness stand and they said, somebody told me about this. Valerie told me that she saw so-and-so doing such and such. We're not going to convict the person, right? That's hearsay. It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means Valerie is not a witness to what happened right? A witness is somebody who has actually seen it. And the apostles have seen Jesus, the risen Jesus. In that sense, we're not witnesses. We testify to what God has done in our lives, but we're not witnesses in the act sense. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses. It's not us, it's the apostle. And we believe on the basis of their message. John 13, Jesus says to them, whoever accepts the one I have sent accepts me. So to accept the apostles is to accept Jesus. Do you see that? They're the ones that he sent. And he tells them in John 16, the Holy Spirit will guide them to truth. And he'll do it by both reminding them of the words Jesus has taught them, bringing those back to their memory, but also revealing additional truth to them. He will lead you into things. He will reveal to you, Jesus says, things that you cannot receive yet. Things they couldn't receive until Jesus had died and risen again and ascended. So the Spirit is behind the giving of the New Testament. When Jesus talks about this in John 14 and 16, he's not so much talking to us that the Spirit will, he says that he'll give you the words to say and he'll lead you into all truth. He's talking to the apostles. And how are they going to pass on that truth? They're going to pass it on by writing it down. And so the writers of the New Testament said that Jesus was communicating through them. They wrote with authority as if they were writing things people should obey. Paul doesn't tend to write, you know, here's a wee thought for you that you might want to, right? Doesn't sort of say, you know, some people say this and some people say that, the way I lecture in Bible college and you make up your own mind. He says, this is what the gospel is. This is the consequence of it in your life. And the apostles were the living link to Jesus, especially in the later books of the New Testament, you get this idea coming through. They talk even already in the past tense about these apostles who had seen Jesus and been authorized by him to be his representatives. And Jesus' words already in the New Testament are called scripture. And the writings of the apostles are called scripture. Peter calls Paul's letters scripture. He says people distort them as they do the other scriptures. 
He also says they're difficult to understand, which is kind of relieving for somebody who comes to a seminar like this. I'm not the only one who struggles at times. Um, Even Peter struggled with Paul's letters. But he says they are scripture. So the New Testament is authorized by Jesus. Jesus didn't say, okay, the New Testament and here's the list of books. But he appointed representatives, apostles, who were the ones who wrote those books and, or the other people who wrote the books lived with those apostles and wrote down their teaching. It's a living link with Jesus. Now, why is that important? Before I just hand over to Valerie in a second. It's important because on the basis of this fact that the scriptures in their entirety, plenary, in their words, verbal, are inspired by God, the word of God, as well as the words of people, they are permanent and unchanging. They are permanent and unchanging. Jesus says this several times. They will not pass away. They cannot change. They must not be nullified. Now that doesn't mean every command that God ever gave to anybody in the Bible is a command to you here and today. Some of the commands were to specific people. Joshua, you lead that army into that country. He's not saying, oh, I have to go over to the banks of the Jordan and go into and get in it, whatever. Right? That was clearly for him there and then. Or the commands that form the law in the Old Testament, some of those, the scriptures make them clear that they're not for us as the new covenant people of God. But the underlying truths about who God is and what God expects and the things that are consistent through Old Testament and New Testament, the standard of morality, the the standards of what is right behavior and what is wrong, of what God desires, those things do not change. Right? It's not that scripture was of its time, but we are more enlightened now. Scripture was of its time, yes, but the truth that it reveals about what God really wants and who he really is does not change. Okay, so there's there's a permanent standard that we can refer back to. It's authoritative for belief and behavior. Jesus uses it in this way, right? He he constantly, you see him in debates and he will point people to one word from the Old Testament and say, this is the word that explains where you're wrong. (laughs) You're wrong in what you're thinking about God. You're wrong in how you're living your life. Scripture is the authority through which God as king rules his people. Not that we trust in scripture rather than God, but that we see God's word in scripture and we know that it is authoritative over what we do and what we believe. And it is powerful and effective. Jesus says that the Old Testament will be fulfilled. It will be brought to completion. And this is the wonderful thing about God's truth. When God speaks, things happen. You see this right at the beginning of the Bible, don't you? God said, Genesis 1, and it was so. Yeah? And God's word is powerful and effective to transform and to change And through it, he governs and he rules. And when we come to hear and trust and obey scripture, we discover that God's power is at work in us because the spirit of God takes that truth and he builds it into who we are and he gives us the power and the strength to enact it as we follow his leading. It's the word empowered and enacted through the spirit. Now, I just want to wrap that up with a few statements at the bottom of the page and then give over to Valerie But scripture is, and we'll say this in a slide like this at the end of each day. If you come for each day, you'll see that. So we'll build on this. This is not all that scripture is, but scripture is at least divinely inspired, true, trustworthy words. True words that are trustworthy because they are God's words. The problem, the Bible can be sidelined and distorted by human traditions. 
human ideas, human interpretations, which usually lessen what it says. Our biggest problem with the Bible is often not what we see, but what we don't see. Yeah, We leave certain things out. We emphasize some things above other things. And the principle that maybe will help us, one of the principles is to understand the background, the cultural and historical background. But the lesson from the passage that we looked at, and you can take it home and look at it again, because we're going to look at another passage in just a second with Valerie, that God wants obedience to his word and hearts that are near to him. You notice the verse from Isaiah. Let's not lose that. What did Jesus actually say to those people? He said, you're hypocrites because you're caught up on words and your own traditions and your hearts are far from God. And there's another principle for understanding scripture. Let's not think that we're going to hear what God is saying to us in scripture if our hearts don't really want to hear God. We need hearts that are drawing near to him, submissive to him, surrendered to him, seeking to hear him speak, ready to obey what we hear. If you come to scripture with a hard heart, you're probably not going to get much out of it. Valerie, let, lead us through the next passage. Thank you. Yes, oh, I do. I'll just leave that on the screen. Okay, thank you. I'm just going to stand still. So um, if you want to stand up and jiggle your legs and sit down again, please feel free to do that. It's a long time to sit, isn't it? Um, does it matter? Does it really matter if we allow some tradition to creep into our understanding of scripture um, is it not just a bit of a debate about interpretation or does that impact how the scriptures are going to impact on our lives and I want us to look together at an incident in Luke's gospel um, it's on the other side of your sheet and we're going to look at this um, story because it's a wonderful illustration of everything that Paul has been sharing with us and it's like a practical example of what this will look like lived out in our lives. Because, um, I was reading or listening to someone speak last week and this is what he said. He said it's no point in having a brain full of information if we don't have a heart filled with the Spirit. And unless we match the Word of God and the Spirit of God and it becomes alive in our lives then Bible study is a fruitless exercise. It always has to be about transformation. And so that's why I think this story is wonderful for showing us how that can happen and how tradition can hinder it happening in our lives. Um, but before I go into the story, there are three basic steps in Bible study. And any form of Bible study, I'm sure you will um, know these steps anyway. The first one is observation. Um, in that we read the passage carefully and thoughtfully and find out as much information from the words of the text as we can. Um, God has chosen to communicate himself to us in words. And as Paul said earlier, all of the words matter. And sometimes we read the Bible, we fly through a passage and we don't pay attention to the words. And so what we want to do in observing the text is slow down, think about what we are reading, reflect on the words and the phrases that are being used in order that we can really grasp what the text is saying. The words matter. And then as you do that, we want to move into interpretation. Well, what does this mean? What truth is being conveyed in this text? And over the next couple of days, we look at a couple of principles that govern that 
But one of the main things is we need to make sure we understand what does this mean in the context in which it was written. Where are we in the Bible, in this book, in this chapter, but in the whole big story of God? Context really matters. And the final thing is that once we understand that truth, then we want to start living it out and applying that truth to our lives. That has to be our goal, not an intellectual understanding, but a heart that is willing to surrender and submit to the truth that is being revealed. So careful observation is the foundational step for all of that. And so I want to share with you just one simple skill today to help us to more accurately observe the text And what you'll discover is that I don't have any degrees. Um, So all of my stuff is kind of pretty basic. None of it's rocket science. I remember saying that one day in a group and a man said, well, actually, I am a rocket scientist. (laughs) (laughs) And he truly was. (laughs) So I felt quite quite, um, overwhelmed by that. But anyway, I hope there's no rocket scientists here. Um, But this is a very simple skill. Focus on what is obvious and what is not obvious will become obvious. Okay, And if we're going to focus on what is obvious, the most obvious things are the people, the places, and the events. Who is this passage about? Where is it happening? And what events are taking place? Now, that's not complicated. Anybody can read a passage and answer those simple questions. And that's what we're going to do as we read down this story from Luke's Gospel. And we're going to think, where is this story taking place? Who are the key people that are involved in this particular story and what different events take place that connect those three people together and so what can we learn from this story, okay? And it's just a very simple way of approaching a Bible passage. So let me read the story with you and then I want you to be thinking, where is this happening? Who are the key people and what different events are taking place? And it says, Now he, that's Jesus, was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But... The ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered, You hypocrites! Do not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. It's just a wonderful story, isn't it? And again, as um, Peter, or Paul was talking about Peter and Paul, <laughs> as, as Paul was saying earlier, imagine the scene. Um, so where is this story taking place? The synagogue, okay, all the answers to these questions are going to be obvious, okay? <laughs> Don't look for any hidden hidden answers. Okay, it's taking place in the synagogue. What day of the week is it? The Sabbath. So what's significant about the fact that the context for this story is the synagogue? 
What was the synagogue for? What do people go to the synagogue for on the Sabbath? For worship of God. And what else happened in the synagogue? Does anybody? That's one of those things we could look at. But there was the teaching of the Old Testament scriptures, the reading of Torah, the reading of the prophets, and that happened on the Sabbath day. And so that sets the context for our story. Here we are, we're in the synagogue, it's the Sabbath day, the scriptures are being read and taught, and the people are here with the purpose of worshipping God. So who would you say are the key characters in this story? Again, it's an easy answer, so don't worry if it seems too obvious. Sorry? The rabbi or the ruler of the synagogue. Brilliant. Okay, who else is another person in it? Jesus himself and this woman. So we have three main characters in the story. We have Jesus, we have a woman, and then we have the ruler of the synagogue. And in fact, this story is based on the interaction between those three people. And if we were to divide it up into two, we would see that verse 10 to 13, we have an interaction between which two characters? Jesus and the woman. Okay, so that's one bit of the story. And then in the second part of the story, who do we have interacting with each other? Jesus and the synagogue official. Great. So let's look at those two sections very quickly together. And really all we're going to do is really go down the surface of this. But what I want to show you is you can get so much out of scripture without opening one other book by simply slowing down and asking some questions and using your brain and think about what you're reading. So as we go to the start of the story, what do we learn about Jesus in verse 10? He is teaching in the synagogue. Who was Jesus? He was the incarnate word of God. And he is standing in the synagogue teaching his own word. I don't know about you, but that's profound to me. I've never been in a church service like that before. Can you imagine Can you imagine? Um, It's just an incredible thing. The authority with which he must have taught. But this was his word. And he is taking his word. And he is teaching his word in the synagogue to those who had come. But in the synagogue there is a woman. And in verse 11 we learn some information about this woman. What do we learn about her? She was bent over, okay? She has come in. And how long has she been in this condition? 18 years. And what does it tell us about her? Not only is she bent over, but what else does it say about her? How does it sort of confirm it? She had a disabling spirit and she could not straighten up herself. She wasn't able to do anything for herself. Paying attention to the detail, stop and focus on the detail. And so she has come in, she has had this disabling spirit for 18 years, she is bent over and she cannot straighten herself up. Her walk is distorted, her view of the world is distorted, and here she is in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching the word. But just the teaching of the word does not change this woman's condition. 
And I think we need to see that because what happens then as Jesus is teaching the word in verse 12 and 13, we read four verbs related to Jesus and this woman. What are the four things we see about Jesus in this, um, as he sees this woman? What do we see? He saw her. As he is teaching in the crowd, his eyes fix on this woman and he sees her. Now, everybody else could see her, but what did they see when they saw her? Just a bent-over woman. <laughs> What's that woman? You know, she comes all coming for 18 years. She's been like that for a long time. She comes and she goes, and she can't straighten herself up. Dear lover. But Jesus sees her. And in fact, later on in the, in the passage, what does Jesus see when he looks at her? How does he refer to her later? A daughter of Abraham, and what does he see is wrong with her? She's not just disabled. What is at the root of it? Satan has her bound. You see, when Jesus looks at this woman, he sees a daughter of Abraham bound by Satan. I love that. That he sees her the way other people could not see her. And he wants to do something for her. So when he sees her, what's the next thing he does? He calls her over. He issues a personal invitation to her to come to him. And then what does he do? Before he lays hands on her, what does he do? He speaks to her. And he speaks words, woman, you are free. Who is speaking? Jesus. What did we learn from Paul about the power of his word? When God speaks, his word has power and change happens. It has power to do work. And so as he speaks to her, he says, woman, you are free. And then what does he do? He lays hands on her. What does that mean must have happened from the time he called her to the time he speaks to her? If he's able to lay hands on her, she must have come. She has responded to his invitation and he lays hands on her. What impact does that word that he speaks to her have on this woman? I know all of you know the answer, but you're all going, yeah. You're all saying it to yourselves. I can just see you all going, yeah. Immediately, she was made straight. Remember we saw she couldn't straighten herself. But now she has been made straight. And what does she start to do? She starts to glorify God. That's why she'd come. She's in the synagogue on the Sabbath for the worship of God. And now she has been set free to completely do what she had come to do. She's glorifying God and is all happy in the synagogue. Wrong. <laughs> Every church should have a synagogue ruler. <laughs> And what, what do we read about the synagogue ruler? How does he feel about it? Indignant. Indignant. 
What does indignant look like? <laughs> well, no, hands on hips. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and so what does the synagogue ruler say? What is his issue with this? With what's happened? Sabbath breaking. The context matters. Remember, we're in the synagogue. We're on the Sabbath. And he tells this woman, well, he says, excuse me, but there are six days to do work. And today's not one of those days. If you want to be healed, come back on one of those days. He was quoting scripture. If we go back to Deuteronomy 5, 12 and 13, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So what was he doing wrong? He was, in sense, using scripture to say that they were to do no work. So what's the problem here? Based on those verses, the scribes and the Pharisees had built a body of laws to protect the law of God. And their heart in doing it was good. The Pharisees were actually really good men at heart. Their, their motivation was right. They wanted to make sure they did not disobey God. But they had created this body of traditions and this list of, I think there was a list of 39 prohibitions of things they were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And now these rules and regulations had taken on an authority all of their own. And in some ways they were now becoming contradictory to the very heart of scripture. Because how does Jesus respond to this ruler? What does he call him? A hypocrite. Because what does he say he does? He, he waters. In fact, he talks about you untie them and set them free. See, the issue here is freedom. You let your animals go free in order that they can enjoy Sabbath, in order that they can have water, in order that they can be rested. Here we have a daughter of Abraham. Was she free? No, she was bound by Satan. And Jesus is saying, what you don't understand is Sabbath can only be observed when you're free. Because <laughs> if we had read the next verse in Deuteronomy 5, 12 and 13, they were able to remember the fact that they had been slaves in Egypt. They didn't have the choice to have a day off. <laughs> When they were in slavery, they could never have Sabbath because they had no choice, they had no freedom. It's only now you have the freedom to choose and you are free to take that one day and to take that day for the worship of God. And now we have a daughter of Abraham who is bound, who is coming here and she can't straighten up and she's being held captive. And all I did was set her free the same way you set your animals free that she can now worship me the way she could. And so the traditions of the elders 
were working against the truth of the scriptures in order to allow this woman to be fully free. The children of Israel only became able to keep Sabbath once they were free. And as we look down this passage, I think there's a number of things we can reflect on in this story. I know our time is gone. But we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions as we think about this story. What areas of my life, both my personal life and within my church community, do the traditions that I follow cut across the straight teaching of God's word? That's a hard question to answer, and it's sometimes a scary one to look at. But our traditions can stop us from living in the freedom that God has come to give us. What happens when those traditions are challenging the truth of God's word? Can't we often get that indignant response in ourselves? Oh, but hold on a wee minute. If you allow that to happen, dear knows what else will creep in. And we're scared sometimes not to do it the way we've always done it because we're scared of the freedom that comes when God wants to do it his way. What steps do I need to take in order to live in the authority and in the freedom of God's word? And a final question this passage raises for me as we would apply it to our lives. What difference would it make to my life if I heard the summons of Jesus inviting me to himself and telling me in my very soul, you are free? That's what the Bible needs to do as the Holy Spirit allows it to become alive in our hearts and speak the truth of God to our hearts, that it will transform us to be the people that he's called us to be. I'm going to hand back to Paul. Thank you. Thanks, Valerie. Was that difficult? <laughs> Hopefully you're, you're getting a sense just to, to look at the passage, to look into it. Think about why did God give us his word? Why did he communicate? to help us understand it, to draw us into relationship with himself. And, and the wonderful thing, I mean, as Valerie has illustrated in that passage, that the, the liberating, redemptive word of God comes before the call, that ex- expectation of obedience. You see it in the law. God gives the law in the Old Testament after he's brought them out of Egypt. <laughs> yeah. And, and as we engage with the world, of course, we know that we are called to be obedient to God and the standards that we live by. We look at a world that doesn't live that way, but what is it that they need to hear? They need to hear that liberating call of the gospel, which is a call to repent and leave behind the old life, confess sin and begin a new beginning. But it's a call to be liberated by the power, the transforming power of God, and then to come into the freedom, and Valerie said that beautifully, the freedom that comes from obedience to God's word. Now time is up for those who need to go and get their children. Please feel free to leave. But we have, we have time for some questions if you want to ask that. But if you do need to go out, we understand that too. So any, any questions about anything that I've said or what Valerie has said, uh, and please free, feel free to come back to us tomorrow. And um, we will have more time tomorrow and the following day for questions. We needed to do some introduction to things today as well. I will also say, just as we move towards the end, as you go out, you might want to pick up one of the leaflets about courses at Belfast Bible College. As you know, I teach there, and I will be teaching in the spring of next year, January and February, a course called Reading and Interpreting the Bible, RIB. 
I'd rather it was called rub. I'd rather have the word understanding there instead of interpreting, because interpreting sounds like it might put you off. But this is really skills into how to get into the word. Um, but please also check out my website for uh, the PowerPoint from today. Um, that's also on your handout at the bottom. But thanks, see you. So any, any questions just as we, we wrap up? Great. And either means we've done a great job or a terrible job, Valerie. No, thanks. It's not a question. Good. Uh, come on. Thanks. Yeah. Yes. Great. Yes. Yeah. 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 So I'll say this for the benefit of the recording, but the lady was saying from the audience just the. the uh, it reminded her, as we looked at that passage of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, talking to the, the two and opening up the scriptures to them and how fantastic a Bible study that must have been. And we'll pick that up, actually, in, I think it's tomorrow, isn't it? Thanks, Bonner. Um, that we'll think about how Jesus is the fulfillment of scriptures and how we see him in the scriptures. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, well, hopefully we've, we've whet your appetite. Hopefully you feel a bit more confident and empowered. Confident both to say that actually scripture is the word of God. I think we had to lay that foundation so that we have confidence to know God has spoken. There is truth that we can know, that we can engage with the world with, that we can be obedient to. But also confidence to say, I need to get into this word. I need to read it. I need to see what it's saying. And I need to both see the truth that it reveals and then see how that truth changes me. That as God speaks that truth into my life by his spirit, that I change in my beliefs and in my behavior to be the person that he's calling me to be. So thank you. Let me just pray for you as we finish. Father, we thank you for our time together and it would be meaningless if we don't go out from this tent to be people who live with you and for you. But we want to thank you for the wonderful gift of your word. It is a precious thing to us that you have spoken and your speaking, as we think of that example of Jesus, calls us to yourself and it speaks redemptive power into our lives, freeing from sin, from Satan, from the curse of hell, from all of the lies of Satan that would ensnare us. Would you continue to speak your truth into our lives, Father, and may we have ears to hear it and hearts that are willing to obey. May we avoid that trap of hypocrisy by setting up our own fences around your word or by making it more convenient for ourselves and harder for others. May we hear the hard bits that you're saying to us. May we bring that freeing to others. In Jesus' name, amen.